Well, good morning. Um, I take it as a great privilege and pleasure to be with you here all again today. And our text for today is going to be Philippians 2, verse 25. So if you wouldn't mind turning there with me. Now, before we get started, I'm going to be Captain Obvious real quick and say something that should be just blatantly obvious. But I don't like getting sick. Now, I know that has a lot of connotations in our day and age, but think back with me to a time when getting the common cold or a cough was just something that happened. It was normal. I mean, you'd be under the weather for a couple days, maybe out of commission, but eventually you'd get better and go back to work and life as usual. Now, our text for today actually dress, addresses a pretty serious physical malady, and I hope by understanding it with you, we would gain a better understanding of what kind of weight and significance our physical health should have in our lives. So, with that being said, let's look at the text. Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am therefore the more eager to send him, that you may see him and rejoice in him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, over the course of the summer, as you guys know, we have been going through a series in which we look at these phrases that we've been calling the divine pivots, those but gods in the Bible where our life and our circumstances and things are going on and God interjects and interrupts with those two words, but God. And here you can see in verse 27, our divine pivot, how God has mercy on Epaphroditus. Now, in order to understand this text, I want to ask three questions of it with you. First, how does this text fit into the letter as a whole? What's the context? Second, what is the exact and unique nature of this specific divine pivot? Namely, what is it, and is there anything unique about it? Third, how does this divine pivot apply to you and me? What does it mean for us 2,000 years later here in Ankeny, Iowa? So, how does it fit into the book as a whole, specific characteristics, and how does it apply off. And then with that, we can dive in with the first question about the context. Now, taken as a whole, I think Paul wrote the book of Philippians to encourage them to continue in their walk with the Lord. In other words, Paul's aim in writing the letter is to commend and promote their faith and to encourage its perseverance. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 9. This is my prayer for you that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, notice what Paul wants from these people. He's not necessarily trying to solve any specific problem, and he's not necessarily guaranteeing them health or wealth or anything like that. But he simply wants to create a certain kind of person, and he wants to promote their behavior simply just to be good, godly Christians who love Jesus, work for the good of others to the glory of God. So if these are the types of people Paul wants to promote, how exactly does he go about that? Well, one way he does that in the book is to set before the eyes of the Philippians examples worthy of imitation. And he starts with his own circumstance. Paul says earlier in the book that I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here, the imprisoned Apostle Paul is not trying to elicit pity or have people feel sorry for him. Instead, he's saying, look, these bad things that have happened to me aren't necessarily bad because the jailers and the guards are hearing the gospel and my preaching peers are actually being inspired to do what the text says, and that is to preach the word without fear. Now, in addition to Paul, he also reminds us of the example of our Lord. He says this earlier in the letter, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count this equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Paul wants the Philippians to look at Jesus and say, wow, here is God in the flesh. Though he was high and holy, he did not count that as something to be cherished at all costs, but instead took on flesh and lived on our crummy little planet for our good. And therefore, the Philippians should seek the good of other people. And just before our text for today, Paul points out Timothy and says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send you Timothy soon, so that I too may be cheered of news for you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Christ Jesus. So, so far, what is Paul doing? Well, he's pouring out example after example of what it means to live as a fruitful and godly Christian in the hopes of promoting the faith of the Philippians. And don't forget, Paul, Epaphroditus, Timothy, what these men are actually like doing. I mean, it's obvious, right? They're working in the ministry of the gospel, but don't let that become mundane or just routine for you. I know a lot of times for me, the gospel is so central to a lot of things we do here at church that it can just be taken as a given. But it helps just to ponder to think about what we're talking about. I mean, you have a God, 
and he is holy, and he is great. And it's not just that he is bigger and better than anything you've ever seen or could possibly imagine, but it's that he resides in this category all to himself. Everything else had a beginning, was created by him. He alone is creator. Everything else exists in this thing we call time and space. He himself is eternal and timeless, never had a beginning. All things exist. You, me, this podium here exists because God sustains it and wills it to be so. But he was made by no one and necessarily just is. He could not have been, if that makes sense. And yet, in spite of being so much greater than us, in spite of all our crimes against his holiness that deserve his judgment, he, in Christ, did not count this is a thing to be grasped, but came to redeem us from our sins, to rescue us from our crimes, and to restore us back to him. And now, think about that. With a message so sacred, with a God so holy, with a truth so timeless and precious, you would think that only the highest archangel in heaven would be given the opportunity and the privilege to preach that to the world. But angels aren't given that task. Namely, by and large, primarily, that highest of all callings is given to men and women, boys and girls, not much different than yourselves. And so that's what our examples are doing in this text. That's what they're about. That's their mission. And now let's ask our second question, how, uh, what exactly is this divine pivot? Like, what's its specific and unique nature? Well, let's take a closer look at the text. Paul writes in verse 25, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Now, real quick, who is Epaphroditus? We don't really know a lot about him. He only appears in this one letter to the Philippians. Many scholars think that he was probably the one that delivered the letter from Paul to the church, and he definitely had some type of pagan background being named after the Greek goddess of love and fertility, Aphrodite. But in spite of this, listen to how Paul describes him. My brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Paul probably didn't have many colleagues or acquaintances. Instead, he had brothers and soldiers and fellow workers. Look and just think about the terms with me real quick. Paul identifies Epaphroditus not just as a brother, but as my brother. In other words, they are more than just simply co-workers trying to get a job done. There is a real sense of affection and love between the two. In addition to this familial sentiment, Paul's missional mindset is represented in his identification of Epaphroditus as a fellow worker. Although Paul loves Epaphroditus, it's not just about Paul and Epaphroditus. They are laborers in something that is much bigger than either of them. And finally, notice how Paul identifies Epaphroditus as his fellow soldier. In other words, 
Paul recognizes the war zone that life actually is. He and Epaphroditus experienced firsthand opposition to their message and cause. Now, although you and I might nod our heads and thumbs up everything Paul is saying, I know in my own life, I don't necessarily adopt those terms for my relationships. I mean, if you come up to me and you start talking about the brotherhood and how life is a war, I'm going to be like, you're right, but you're probably just one of those people that writes giant long Facebook posts and makes life a little more dramatic than it actually is. And that's not necessarily true. If you're like me, you might just use that type of excuse because you don't want to take life as seriously as God would have you take it. Paul is not being overly dramatic, but in a very real sense, your life is a battleground and your heart is wrestling with competing loves and ideas. And this does not just apply to the missionary risking life and limb on foreign soil. But it applies to the teenager wasting too much time on a smartphone. It applies to a young couple putting all their hopes for happiness in each other. It applies to the mom and dad who just can't wait for the kids to go back to school someday if that ever happens. And it applies to a very selfish John Howe who wants to shirk many of his responsibilities often. And it's my prayer for you and definitely me that we would wake up and that we would see the realness of Christ and his cross, the reality of heaven and hell, and how short our time on this planet actually is. Now, all this is to say that that's the kind of life in our text that this divine pivot is entering into and interrupting. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus were doing this work of gospel ministry, and it was almost cut short. Look with me. Verse 26, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in service to me. Now, here's what I take to be the specific divine pivot that's going on in our text today. Although sickness and death continue to plague God's people, he may mercifully heal physical maladies so that the ministry of the word and the flourishing of his people can continue. In other words, God showed mercy to Epaphroditus and healed him specifically so that Paul would not have sorrow upon sorrow and so that the Philippians could have joy at seeing him again. Now, there was probably a myriad of other reasons why Paul kept God kept Epaphroditus alive, but we are only told these two. Now, I think there's something unique about this text as opposed to the other divine pivots we looked at so far this summer. And to better understand its weight and place in our life, I'd like to briefly review with you some of the text we've looked at. 
Ephesians 2 talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. In this classic text, we see the gospel on full display. Men are wicked, dead, sinners, and by nature, children of wrath. But God, because he loves us and has mercy toward us, redeems us from our spiritual plight through the work of Christ and raises us up to new life. And this applies to all people at all times. Anyone throughout any age can repent and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Let's look at another text, Genesis 8, 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts of the field and the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. In this text, we see the faithfulness of God demonstrated in the plight of Noah. Even though the entire planet is suffering under a watery judgment, God remembered his promise of deliverance to Noah. And if God didn't forget to remember Noah, then he will not forget to remember the promises that he has made to you too. And lastly, real quick, listen to Psalms 49. Although death is the end of all mankind, the psalmist writes, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, whether rich or poor, young or old, Known or well-known, death does not show partiality. It does not play favorites. And all peoples at all times are susceptible to it. But because of the gospel and because of what Christ has done for you, anyone can trust in Jesus. And to that believer, God will be his hope beyond the grave. So, by and large, what's going on in these specific divine pivots that isn't happening in Philippians. I think in the cases of Ephesians and Genesis and the Psalms, we have universal promises from God to us. God always forgives the repentant sinner. He never forgets to remember. And even though death is the great equalizer, all believers can have hope beyond the grave. But in our text in Philippians, something different is happening. What happened to Epaphroditus, God's intervention there in saving him from the illness that brought him near to death, isn't necessarily something that happens to every believer. You see, God loved and rescued Epaphroditus from the sting of death. But you might be asking, why didn't he show mercy to my loved one? Maybe that child that you would have done anything for never got better. Perhaps mom and dad are being taken away sooner than you would have wished. Maybe that friend of yours has cancer and the situation looks dire and the outcome is uncertain. And so even though Paul was kept from sorrow upon sorrow, you're left wondering, God, why didn't you have mercy on me? Now, this is a hard question to answer, and I think understanding certain elements of God and his mercy here will shed light on the situation, but it definitely won't take all the pain away. First, it's important to remember that God's mercy is a merciful act by him. In other words, you don't earn it. 
or deserve it. And there's no way you can conjure it up and merit it. He does it of his own good free will as the Lord and giver of life. He has the right to sustain it where he sees fit and the right to end it where he sees fit. And in either case, he does not have to answer to us about it. Second, God's mercy in our text is different from the notion of his saving grace that we talked about in passages like Ephesians. Listen to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Now, notice what Christ is saying here. He is saying that you should care about and love people who hate and despise you. Why? So that you can be representatives of God. And what does God do? Well, he sends the rain on believers and unbelievers alike, which implies that there is a kind of grace and mercy of God that is not tied to the saving promises of the gospel. And I'd wager that Epaphroditus probably knew that. In fact, Paul said that he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus was not seeking to avoid death at all cost. He knew that life was only worth living if it was lived unto the Lord and in service to his cause and people. And I bet he mirrored the sentiment of the apostle. Listen to what Paul said earlier in the chapter. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For Paul, there are only two options. Stay here and do a fruitful ministry for Christ and his cause, or depart from the body and go be with Jesus. And even though he would much prefer the latter, he realizes the importance of the former and is content to stay and serve in any way he can. And this is where our third and final question comes in. So what does it mean for us? How does this apply to us in our lives? I mean, it's great that Epaphroditus got mercy from God and didn't taste the sting of death but we've already talked about how that's not the case for every believer. And so why are we even discussing it today? Well, even though this isn't a direct promise of God to each and every one of us, I think it still teaches us certain aspects and characteristics about God himself that are universal and timeless and that we can bank on for all times. Now, what this is, it might sound a little bit trite to you. And it might seem blatantly obvious. You've probably heard it a thousand times, and maybe you just take it as a given. But my hope for you and for me today is that our wonder and the weight of it on our hearts would be renewed, and it is this. It's that God loves you. He actually does. He really does love you. And that means that God wants what's best for you. 
And as many of you know much better than I do firsthand, that is often not what we would have wanted initially. Sometimes it looks like what happened to Epaphroditus, healing so that Paul wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. But sometimes it looks like what happened to a boy named Stephen. Now, five-year-old Stephen had a lot of aspirations for life. He wanted to grow up and be a pilot just like his father was. Now, many of you have probably heard the stories of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, but this boy's pilot went to be a missionary to a remote tribe in Ecuador, and the boy's father and some others were tragically, unexpectedly murdered when they first tried to contact that tribe. Now, although that is one tragedy, that's not all that Stephen endured. This little tyke grew up, got married, raised some sons, had one baby girl, and this is what he wrote about her. I made her promise that she'd never grow up. She broke her promise and went away to college. You know, those people are the worst. And then a time of suffering came because Youth for Christ asked Stephanie, who could play the piano so beautifully, to go away with them for a year and share the gospel with their group. So now, after a painful year apart, this father and daughter were one day reunited. But the reunion was cut pretty short because one day, Stephanie gets a headache, has a massive cerebral hemorrhage, rushed to the hospital, just dies out of the blue. Now, in reflecting on these events, Mr. Stephen recounts that the death of his daughter was one of the f- things that finally gave him a renewed passion for missions himself. And listen to these words that he wrote about the death of his father. Countless lives have been impacted by it. Thousands of missionaries name it as the reason their hearts were moved to respond to God's call. Our family has been blessed by the love, friendship, kinship of the tribe that they ministered to. And if I had to change anything, I wouldn't change a thing. Now, lest you think that God is some type of cruel, isolated physician that just forces this kind of good medicine down the throats of his patients while he himself sits back untouched by any malady, I would just simply remind you of our Lord. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about him. Despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Folks, we're all sick. This human race of ours is deathly ill with a very terrible disease. You see, every inconvenience at the job, every act of a rebellious child, every hurtful word, every nasty exchange on the internet, every tragic loss of life is meant to be a reminder to us that something is not right with this world. We are still 
at war with our maker. We have sinned against the holy God. His wrath is kindled against us. And the only just outcome should be our eternal conscious torment in hell itself. But instead of leaving us stubbornly to die unending deaths, he came, Christ came, to be crushed for our iniquities so that we could be healed by his wounds. Is that not amazing grace? He really does love you, even when it hurts. Don't push him away. He knows when to heal, and he knows when to call you home. So whether he has mercy on your physical body today or resurrects it tomorrow, I pray that his love and care and desire to do what's best for you will encourage you and give you the power needed to live like a soldier for his sake in this dying planet that needs to hear his gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.